The Vela News Podcast Tour Day so, uh, Social Distancing continues this week. I'm Fred Dreyer, coming to you from my home office here outside Boulder, Colorado. It's a sunny Tuesday uh, morning outside. The birds are chirping. People are walking their doggies, wearing their protective masks or face gaiters, or I've seen like um, like sleeves of a t-shirt that someone cut off that they are wearing as a makeshift mask. Um, I, looking through the screen at the beautiful faces of Andy Hood and James Start. James seems to be covering his face as well. We're all doing our part in this age of social distancing and coronavirus to uh, do what our uh, leaders tell us to do, wearing masks and not talking to each other. Okay, we have a great episode of the podcast coming up this week, similar to what we did last week where we rewatched three uh, past editions of the Tour, to Fl- Tour of Flanders and broke it down. We're doing the same thing with Paris-Roubaix because had this been a regular – um, boring old cycling year, we would be just days away from the hell of the north talking all about the storylines, the riders to watch, the weather, whether there were any tweaks to the course, who was looking good, who was looking bad, and always just talking about how utterly insane and painful it is to ride over the stones of Roubaix. I was there last year. I rode over some of the stones, and then I went to go do the Paris-Roubaix Sportive, as you may remember, and my bicycle was stolen just minutes before I was able to start the Paris-Roubaix Sportive. Again, recommend the Flanders Sportive. I would say skip the Paris-Roubaix Sportive. Anyway, that's my long preamble. Um, We'll start off with you, Andy Hood, in Spain. Has your situation changed at all? The last time we caught up with you, you were not really going outside. Have you been able to go outside? It sounds like some of the statistics involving... Spain's coronavirus cases have been uh, leveling off, flattening. How's your situation? Yeah, in terms of the lockdown here in Spain, it's basically the same. In fact, they've extended it until April 28th. So, uh, and the expectation is it'll go beyond that. So, I'm just hoping if they do have a tour de France in July, as the rumor is, that I'll be able to leave my house by then. That's my kind of realistic goal. Yeah, Andy's tour de apartment is uh, this past three weeks, going going beyond three weeks. Day 25. Ooh. 25 for me. And you, James, how uh, has your situation changed any since we caught up a week ago? Uh, no, but it's going to be changing tomorrow. Uh, we've been able to go outside for an hour a day for shopping or uh, a little bit of physical activity within the neighborhood, within a one kilometer thing in the neighborhood. And they're going to take that down. We're not going to be able to go out unless you go out before 10 o'clock or 7 in the evening. So I guess uh, there's going to be a a traffic jam of joggers in in the evening or in the morning, but during the day, there's no more, more of that. I'm lucky. I have a balcony that gets, uh, and with the hour change last week, we have, uh, and it's been sunny without all the cars here. Lots of no, no pollution, strangely enough. So I've had a nice sun on my balcony. I put my, uh, I put my, uh, elite, uh, my little elite home trainer out there with my bike, set it up. And I look at the rooftops of Paris and, and actually I'm getting some tan lines. I have to say, because uh, we had some nice weather this weekend. So, you know, making the best of a bad situation. I've been looking forward all week to this podcast because Perry roubaix is absolutely my favorite race, period. Uh, no other. And uh, so knowing that we get to talk about this uh, on our podcast was just – it's been the highlight of my week. Thank you so much for having Perry roubaix Yeah, I love <laughs> I love Roubaix too. I love uh, the spectacle of it. I love the strategy. I love just the brutality of it. Last year was really the first time where I had hauled a bike out and started riding over some of the stones and got a taste for just how awful and terrible they are. Um, let's give the listeners a little bit of a feel for what Roubaix week tends to be like, the buildup to Roubaix. You know, you have Flanders on a Sunday, then you have Skeldapri on that Wednesday. And then from Wednesday on until Roubaix, it's just sort of, you know, there's media availabilities, there's teams doing reconnaissance rides and pre-rides. And what does the lead up to Roubaix tend to be like for you all? James, we'll start with you. Um, it's really exciting. I mean, like like you said, um, there you know we've had this amazing month in in uh, in Belgium, and you go, well, how could it get any better? And it's like it's better, but it shifts gears and they just take it to a, a a different level. All of a sudden, everything is around this one ride, uh, and yeah, the teams are out doing recon Thursday uh, and Friday. And testing out the new equipment because there's always special equipment uh, being used here, and you just sense the, the the anticipation, the excitement, and 
and and the tension. I mean, this is this is one of the only races in the world where guys are actually can still like get scared at the start line um, because it, it is like you said, it can just be brutal. Hoodie, what's your uh, buildup typically like? <clears throat> yeah, I would I would agree with uh, with James in the sense of uh, it's kind of a uh, shifting of gears. <clears throat> I would say that the real big buildup actually is the week before Flanders. That's where everything just gets in hype mode. You know, going. Th- I think the way they rearrange the the racing schedule to have those three weekends with Ken Vogelbaum, Flanders, Roubaix, uh, just really builds to a kind of crescendo at Flanders and at, uh, everyone in, everyone in Belgium and the Flanders region. Everyone just gets so hyped up for it. It's a big party. It's a big race. And like we said last week, you know, the new Flanders course, I think, has really uh, served that race well. So you kind of like it just hits the top of this kind of peak in terms of just a uh, frenzy. And then, uh, you know, Shell de Prix, which is now kind of this midweek, midweek race. It's almost forgotten a lot of the big Robey bound stars don't even race it anymore for fear of a crash or something. And then uh, just because it is in France, you know, everyone kind of has to pick up stakes and go down to Compiègne. Uh, different feel, you know, it's just like you're in France, you're no longer in Belgium. Uh, the beer isn't nearly as good. Uh, but, you know, you get there that Saturday afternoon in uh, Compiègne, the old palace there. You know, the ambiance is, is spectacular. They have the team presentation. Uh, usually the, the the spirit inside of Compiègne town, you know, is that all the journalists are there. All the fans are packed into the bars and restaurants. So it's it's a great scene. And then, you know, really early the next morning for the start, the start is around 9, 9.30. So you go in early, 10 o'clock, there's a big, or 8 o'clock, there's a big kind of tent there when gets a really bad cup of French coffee and then has like, a kind of a stale croissant, and then man, we're off to the races. Uh, Andy, I think, I think you're being a little hard on the French. I mean, okay, they don't have the beer and they have bad coffee, but they do make up for it with wine. Thank you. <laughs> it's true. The wine is very good. What I love about the buildup to Roubaix is you've had two big classics, one of them a monument in Gentwevelgam and Flanders. So the storylines for the classics week, the cobblestone classics has already been partially set. You know who has won these races, you know which teams are strong, you know who's on really good form and who's not. And Roubaix also to me represents like, it's almost like the Welta in a sense that it's like this last opportunity for those teams and those riders who didn't get a good result at uh, Gentwevelgam or Flanders to really pull something off. So like, you know, let's say it's a typical year and like a quick step has done, has, has won, and Sagan and quick step have won Flanders and Gent Wevelgem. Well, then the pressure's really on some of the other teams to try and do something in Roubaix. And you can feel the pressure building around them that morning in Compiègne when the buses are lined up. Like, you know, Trek, I just think back to like Trek Segafredo because they've had some disappointing classics of late. And it's like by the time they get to uh, Paris Roubaix, it's real quiet. Tensions are high as opposed to Flanders, you know, where like people are warming up and they're checking the bicycles. I feel like the the bike check around Roubaix is really nervous because there are, you know, there's there's new tech being used or there's different setups. Um, that's a little bit different. Something that also stands out to me is like Hoodie said, you know, you know, you're in Flanders, you know, you're in Belgium for a few weeks and then you uproot and drive down to Compiègne uh, two days before or the day before. And you drive past um, these World War One battlefields. I mean, I'm a huge history nerd. And you're like driving through the middle of the Somme and you're driving through, you know, some of these epic battlefields from the Marne and, you know, Cambrai and some of these historical points. And now they're just these quaint little farming towns and these rolling hills. And it's like, oh, my gosh, you know, 100 years ago, like the future of Western society was decided on some of these hillsides. And now we're going to be racing bikes through it. It is it, it's a very special uh, race and situation. And uh, again, all the fans out there who have always wanted to go check out European racing, I wholeheartedly endorse going to Flanders and Rupin and Genwevelgem to check it out. It's really it's really interesting because, in you know, Flanders Classics has done such a great job in the last ten years of developing all of those races. And like Andy said, you got you've I mean, Gent Velogem is a much different race and a much better race than it was ten fifteen years ago. Ten fifteen years ago it was midweek, it was two hundred kilometers, and it was the training warm up race for 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 Rube. But now it's almost a monument, and you get so you get. Vevelgem and Flanders, which are just, you know, 
be- just some of the most beautiful races of the year. And and in a sense, you go, well, Ruben is going to be kind of anticlimactic. And then, but then you got probably the most complicated race to negotiate of the year, the most iconoclast race. And, and, and so it's, you know, it's not at all anticlimactic. It's just as its own thing. Um, and it's, 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 it's so amazing. But, the, but, you know, but the, the trio, the one, two, three trio, and we've had, you know, and it crowns this month of cobbles. It's the, it's also the last. It closes this book of classics. If anything, it's been, I think, harder to generate the same kind of energy and emotion for the Ardennes, uh, because they're very different riders. And there's such an intense concentration, uh, around Flanders and Roubaix, uh, that, if anything, you know, uh, it's, it's, you know, Amstel and, 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 and Liege are the races that are, that struggle in the shadows of, of, of these races. Yeah, I agree with that, James. I do. Well, guys, we chose three recent editions of Paris Roubaix to rewatch, like we did with Flanders last week. We found the YouTube clips, fired them up, rewatched a good portion of the race, took notes, asked ourselves why we chose these editions. Um, see what we learned from them, from rewatching them. And now we have come armed with lots of hot takes, knowledge, perspective that we're going to shed. So I chose the 2014 edition, one by Nikki Terpstra. Andy, you chose 2016, one by Matthew Heyman. And James, you chose last year's 2019 edition, one by Philippe Gilbert. So we're going to go in chronological order here. Um, I'm going to start us off with 2014. I chose this edition for a few different reasons. I remember I watched basically the entire thing live. I think it was like bad weather that Sunday. And oftentimes, you know, when these big classics hit on a day that's nice out, I'll go and ride and then come back and like catch the last 100K or so. Um, this was before I had come back to Velenews. So I was not working at Velenews, but I still watched all the races and it was like a crappy Sunday. And so I think I watched like, I don't know, 150K or so, like hours and hours of this race. I also chose it because you can find the YouTube clip with the Eurosport commentators in English online and you can watch basically all of it. And for some reason, Roubaix, I think maybe because NBC has the rights, like you can find a lot of old Flanders clips and full Flanders broadcasts on YouTube, but um, Roubaix is not the case. I kind of have to hunt around to uh, to find that stuff. So the storylines going into this year were we were still very much in the Cancellara versus Bunin um, era of the cobblestone classics, even though we were getting towards the tail end of it. So Cancellara retired in 2016, Bonin retired 2018, I believe, um, 2017. And these guys, you know, Cancellara was still very much, I feel like at the, you know, close to the peak of his powers because he won Flanders the week before in thrilling fashion. I suggest everyone go back and watch the 2014 Tour of Flanders. That's when Cancellara, um, he bridged to a group with like Van Avermaet and Steen Vandenberg and Sepp Van Mark came with him. I just remember it was Cancellara versus the Vans because it was Vandenberg, Van Mark mm-hmm. and uh, Van Avermaet. And Cancellara still beat them in a sprint. It was his four-up sprint and he won. And it was, I think, one of his most spectacular victories at uh, Flanders. So you knew that Cancellara was flying. You also knew that Van Mark was really strong, and he was on this team, the Belkin team with Lars Bohm, um, Bram Tankink. They actually had a really good classic squad. He was still young, but like he was at – I think he had been second or third at uh, Roubaix the year before. So he was very strong. So you had him uh, kind of coming up. So you had Bonin versus Cancellara. Then the guys who you had kind of coming up and on the upswing, um, you had uh, – Greg Van Avermaet and Taylor Finney, who were almost like co-team leaders at Team BMC. You had Van Mark and Boom. You had very like baby Peter Sagan, who um, features very prominently into the final 30K of this race, even though there were times in this race where he looked really um, not very uh, comfortable on the bike. And then the biggest storyline coming in was Bradley Wiggins. This was his swan song, and he had made a big – uh, you know, there was a lot of press about how he was going to race Paris-Roubaix and not just race it, but like really take it seriously and focus on it and do training around it. And he ended up doing very well in this race and made it into the front group and put in a couple of digs. I mean, it was his attack that softened the group up right before Nikki Terpstra went. 
Um, so the way that the race played out, it was, you know, you had a, a typical early break, I think six guys in there. I love to see the United Healthcare, the American squad had a rider in uh, the early break that year. And they had three or four minutes, you know, the group went into the Arenberg. It definitely split stuff up. Um, looking through my notes here, but really the big move came about 70, 65 Ks to go. And that's when this group gets away with Tom Bonin in it. It's Tom Bonin, Garen Thomas, and some other riders who I can't remember right now. But it was it was really interesting because like Bonin, one of the big dogs, is off the front. And I don't think this was like a full gas Bonin year. I think he had had like kind of a bummer spring with some knee injuries and stuff like that. But to see him go in like the early – the first big move was really interesting. And he was so motivated in rewatching this clip. I'd forgotten how aggressive and how motivated Tom Bonin was in this group. He was driving it. He was yelling at the other guys when they weren't pulling through. Garrett Thomas was taking some pulls, but the other guys were definitely like kind of lollygagging and not doing a ton of work. And Bonin would like – they the cameras would get back on him and he would be like yelling at them and ordering them around and get on the front and take a group big pull. At some point, I think he he split the group up. And so he does an amazing – Bert DeBacker is in there. Here's my Bram Tan kink. And basically, he just throttles himself from 65K to go until I – you know, inside 40Ks to go. Um, actually, inside 30Ks to go. So he's on the front doing a ton of work, expelling a bunch of energy for like 30Ks to go. And then finally, his group is brought back um, at some point – um, Bram Tankink bridged up to him, Thor Hushov bridged up to him, and then the main group finally catches him, and that has all the big dogs in it. Greg Van Avermaet, Cancellara, um, Finney, Mickey Shar, Greg Van Avermaet, and Shar eventually uh, crashed out in a tight right, right-hander. Um, <clears throat> and then you have this big group that is taking turns Attacking each other, Sagan puts in a couple of digs, Lars Bohm and Van Mark put in a couple of digs. Cancellar is extremely aggressive. And then with 18 Ks to go, this is like, you know, they, they hit the Monzenpevela, or not Monzenpevela, they hit the... Uh, the Carrefour. Carrefour. The Carrefour. And you're like, okay, this is it. You know, this is going to be the uh, the deciding moment of the race. And to a certain degree, it is because Cancellar attacks and he draws out uh, Van Mark, Stebar. And Dagan Coleman Sagan. And it's like, okay, here's the group of five. These guys are going to roll all the way to the finish. Kenchelara has the group he wants. And I think it was because Stebar was sitting on, but the group just petered out. And with like 10Ks to go, they get caught by the bigger group coming up behind him that has Bonin, that has Terpstra, Wiggins is in there. And this group of five who you expect to go all the way to the line gets neutralized and Wiggins puts in a dig, he's shut down, and then Terpster goes, and then that's it. And he goes with like six Ks to go. And I remember watching it, and like as soon as Terpster goes, and he went on a paved section of road, you could just tell that was it. Because they flash back to the group, and everyone is just like drinking water bottles. And it's one of those moments in bike racing where I think it, this was the same with Betiel, what we talked about last week where everyone is just really too tired to really care. And at that point, they're like, someone just attack, you know, someone just go. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, it w I thought it was a great addition. It was a hot, fast addition. It wasn't selective enough for it to be groups of twos and threes. And to me, the big storyline coming out of it was, you know, Omega, Quickstep, Pharma, Dakunik, whatever we've called that team over the years, had been really built around Bonin. They had this great supporting cast that had been able to win Flanders. We had seen, you know, where like Bonin was the foil and Stein de Volder was able to get away. But they hadn't done that at uh, Roubaix. With, they hadn't won at Roubaix with a supporting cast member. It had always been Bonin. And this was the year when finally like Bonin was strong, but he wasn't so much stronger than, than everyone else where they had to put all the eggs in his basket and Terpstra was able to get away and win, and it was his, uh, it was his biggest win uh, up to that date. I think, it, I think you could still say it's his biggest, uh, biggest victory. Yeah, it was a, it was a fascinating race. Um, Boonen was actually pretty good that year. I think he'd won Kerm, 
he was not bad. Uh, and obviously neither was Cancelara. I think, I think, I think it was just, there was so, uh, it was just nobody could quite make a difference. And there was too many, just too many guys at the front at the end. And I think, uh, when Cancelara's group got caught, I think that he was, you know, he kind of, I think that kind of demoralized him. So when, when Teresa slipped off the front, I mean, yeah, it was, it was not a cobblestone section. He just sort of, it was a perfect move. I remember he just sort of rolled off the front, you know, uh, it wasn't, it was like a sort of false attack. And all of a sudden he's got a gap and he's going. And the other guys, you know, Cancelara knows that if he makes the effort, he's just going to get, bring the people up and he's just going to compromise his own effort in a sprint. And Boonen there with, with Stieber, I think. So they're neutralizing it. And th- that was it. Uh, you're right. It was the first, probably, I think it was the first time. I mean, Patrick Favre's teams have a long history of having one leader and then two or three lieutenants. And, but it was, you know, back in the day when it was Mape, they would, you know, it would, everything was around Muzayu and he won the race three times. He went in as a strong man, but there were still days or years where they would play the ballerini card or the taffy card. Um, but when, when, when Boonen was in, uh, in charge of the team, I think, or A, I don't think they had the budgets that they did when they had Mape. And, um, and he was just a more dominant rider. I mean, he's the winningest cobblestone rider in history. Uh, you know, I think he's, he's the greatest. He's the record. He, you know, he tied the record in both Flanders and Roubaix. Um, and I think, uh, for me, he, he, he gets, he gets my vote for the, the greatest cobbles rider. So you got him there and, and controlling it. And it was just, it set, it set it up for, for Terpstra. And, you know, Terpstra, I think, yes, I think it was his greatest, but he did go off and win Flanders after that. So it was no fluke either, obviously. Um, and it was just, a you know, is there ever a bad winner in, in Roubaix? It's really pretty hard, uh, to, to find that it's always, it's just one of those races that breeds greatness, you know? Yeah. I remember that year was, um, it was a very dusty year. You know, it's been so long since we've had a wet flat, a, a wet Roubaix. I think the last wet Roubaix was 2011. Um, maybe, or no, excuse me, 2001 or, yeah. But in the early two, since the early 2000s, and I just remember that year was very dusty, very windy, and such dramatic images when you do see the dust kicking up the Carrefour and some of these big uh, pave sectors. Uh, just interesting side note. I mean, I agree with what all you guys are saying. Interesting, you know, that was Wiggins' big, big stab at Robey. He was always such a uh, kind of mercurial rider. You know, he'd be great in the day and he could be just you know, really bad. And, uh, but he was quite good that day. And, and there was a lot of hype around that race. And, and, uh, I was, I was talking to someone just the last week or so about how, um, you know, Robay is one of those races that you can't really map out, like with the way power, power meters have changed racing so much, especially in the mountains and in time trials. Uh, they try to apply some of these trending techniques and strategies to the classics. And that's why I think the classics are so good because, it's not methodical. It's not, ta- you know, it's not just a, a spreadsheet uh, on a training program. It, it really comes down to uh, guts and luck and just, you know, that drive and passion that what makes racing so great. And that's why uh, I really love uh, the, the classics and especially Road Bay because it is just, it's just full gas. It's just a unforgiving race. And uh, either you win or you just pull it out. You know, it's, you're not racing for tomorrow. You're racing only for today. Last thing I'll say well, in this race, uh, something that um, really stood out to me was just the generational shift that we saw going on where, um, you know, Cancellara and Bonin are still there. You know, Bonin would get second two years later, but neither one of those guys would ever win that race again. And um, you saw Dagan Kolb in that front group and looking real strong and looking real smooth. And obviously, he went on to win it the next year. You saw Baby Sagan make it into that group and launch some pretty impressive attacks inside the last 25k you know all of them were neutralized and there were times where he didn't look so great on the cobbles but you could see that he had the strength to make it that far and then the the audacity to attack these elder statesmen and then i you know it was another edition where um sep van mark again he's just you know you you i I would love for him to find to win one of these races because he has been in the top five, in the final group, right there when stuff is going down so many times before. And, you know, just you look at Carrefour de Labra, I mean, he's probably the strongest guy there. And it just didn't work out for him that year. So yet another unlucky uh, Sepp van Mark year. 
<laughs> so James, or actually Hoodie, you're ne- you're up next. 2016. Um, that was the year of Mr. Matthew Heyman when the early break finally succeeded. Why did you choose this edition? Yeah, I chose this one because it kind of represents one of one of the traits I like about Row Bay is that it's it's that kind of race where your kind of journeyman rider has a good chance of winning. Because you look at most races, you know, it, it kind of it's it's broken down into specialties, into disciplines. You know, the sprinters are gonna win, the time trialists are gonna win theirs, the climbers are gonna win in their terrain. You know, so it's that one kind of race where you get these one-off winners, it, a lot of times it might, might only be the one big race. They might have won one during their careers. You know, a few guys that stand out are guys like, you know, Stuart O'Grady. I mean, he was a sprinter back in his day at a deep Palmares, but O'Grady winning. Uh, and Dirk Damal with his famous story of how he got in the breakaway, I think the longest breakaway in Paribas history. He and one other rider fended off the group back way back in the 80s. Johan Van Sumeren, you know, Magnus Baxter, these kinds of guys – Usually they're later on in their careers too. They have the experience. They know how to race Robey. They know how to read the race, how to get into the right moves. So Robey is that one race that occasionally will throw up kind of these one-off uh, kind of uh, not surprise winners, but just riders who, who are always there. They're usually road captains, a lot of experience, a lot of miles in the, in the legs that really have that chance to try to win. You know, And I think uh, you know, this edition kind of summed all that up. Really, because uh, Heyman, you know, remember that that was the year that he broke his arm. He broke his uh, uh, bone in his arm, kind of the bone leading up to his elbow. And he had that famous, uh, those photos where he rigged up uh, kind of MacGyver style, rigged up his trainer at home, had his arm up in a ladder. It was uh-huh. on the trainer two or three days after crashing at the Loop, And all the experts were telling Heyman that his uh, classic season were over. And um, in fact, I spoke to Matt just the last week or so. And we'll have a story on Velenos this week, uh, him looking back on this edition and just him talking about that you know, he, he lived and died for Robey. That was his favorite race of the year. So there was no way he was not going to race. He had no expectation that he was going to be uh, the winner. In fact, uh, that year at Mitchelton Scott, I think it was Arika Green Edge in those days, um, they had Jans uh, uh, Kerkeler and they had um, – who was the other man? And somebody else were the uh, team leaders. Um and Heyman, you know, it was his first race. He had raced the previous weekend, but it was his first big race back since Omloop because he had missed Flanders and all the other big classics. He had raced two small races in Spain the week before Robey just to test his elbow. And so, yeah, I mean, he got in the move. It was a big breakaway. He got in the move early. And, uh, you know, he says, like every pro actually says, the breakaway is the best place to race Robey because you have more space to move. You're not getting all bunched up in the in the, the uh, cobble sectors, especially you know going into the Arenberg. It's such a rat's nest in there, so dangerous. So usually, being in the breakaway has a lot of advantage for racing Robey. So he went out there, got in the breakaway. He said, "Okay, I'm not designated captain today. I'm going to get in the break, get up, be up the road for when the uh, the leaders pull across." And uh, you know everything just went magical for Heyman that day. Because uh, that was, as as uh, Fred mentioned earlier, Bonin, uh, he ended up second that day. He he, is, he was chasing that record fifth win. He never got it. So he's been tied four victories with uh, Roger Devlevic for the most victories at Roubaix. Um, Bonin, you know, he, his Bonin's plan was to retire that day. He wanted to win Roubaix and retire in, in the velodrome. And then you had Conchalara. That was his last year. He retired after winning the gold medal in uh, Rio later that summer. And then, uh, of course, Sagan, who had won Flanders the previous week in the rainbow jersey. He had won Genvagavam and Flanders leading up to Roubaix. So a lot of hype, a lot of big, big anticipation for Roubaix. And everything just went in Heyman's way. Uh, he recounted kind of the last key sectors. Uh, riders came up to him. Uh, a big group formed. Bonin was pushing the uh, pace. And, he, and then the riders he was supposed to be supporting on the team – they either, I think, got punctured and uh, just missed some moves. So he was up there, and suddenly the team said, okay, it's your race, Matt. Go for it. Kept following the moves, and uh, and it came down to – actually, at a certain point, Heyman said he was feeling so good, he started to uh, attack to kind of break up this front group. There's like six riders out there. Edvold, uh, Boas, and Hagen, Standard, and uh, Sepp Van Mark, our old Sepp was in there as well. 
And uh, Heyman was doing some pulls to split the group. And then Bowden uh, bridged out to Heyman. If you guys remember, those two kind of came in to the velodrome ahead of this chasing group. And Heyman was saying that Bowden was telling him to take a pull, take a pull. They're going to catch us. And Heyman said, no way am I taking a pull. And he said, because of not taking that last pull, that um, that was just enough in his legs to beat Bonin in the final sprint. Because had he taken that pull to kind of maintain that separation between those guys bridging back up across standard and those guys caught him in the velodrome in the last lap. So suddenly, you know, it was a five, six up sprint instead of just him and Bonin. Um, and then uh, he said, without taking that final pull, he had just enough gas left in the tank to beat Bonin in that sprint. And that's how he won. Great story. It's it, it's really interesting because um, I I talked with Boonin last year. I went up and visited him when he was racing his cars. And we looked back on his career and his different wins. And I said, you know, of all the races that stand out in your in your career, you know, which which ones are they? And he, you know, obviously had some some of his victories. But he said, honestly, one of the ones is this last when I got second to Heyman, I mean, it was obviously he would like to have won, but it was such a great day and it was such a great ride. And he's, and he went back over and he said, he said, you know, I just, after all these years and all that experience, I made a little mistake in the velodrome when those guys caught us and I got, I got boxed in just for a second, just, just long enough where I couldn't make my acceleration where I wanted to. And that cost me the race. It was just a second lapse of concentration, and it cost it to him. But he wasn't bitter. I mean, he was, and he said even then, I wasn't, I wasn't as uh, as upset probably as some of his his teammates and staff because uh, he's, he's taken, you know he's always been able to put that into perspective. Um, and and even in second place, he said, it, you know, even as a loser, it went down as one of his his uh, his great memories. Yeah, when I I love that edition too. I love the 2016 edition, and when I've rewatched it again, something that stands out to me, similar to 14, was how aggressive Boonin is, and how like how thirsty he is for the victory. You know, in 2014, I think you could make the argument that his aggression from K, you know, 60 to 20k, sapped his legs for the finale. And I think in this one, you look at the last 25K and he is really aggressive. And there's a couple of points where it's like, oh, man, you know, you're, you know, going back with the, the benefit of hindsight. It's like you're you're spending a little bit too much energy there, especially I feel like in the last 5 to 10K where he's attacking the group and attacking the group again. But he doesn't quite – he's not the same old bone in where he can attack and make it stick. It's like he can attack and get the gap and then the guys come back to him. And I think that he, he throws an attack in with like 2K to go and I, and that's the one that draws out Heyman. And that was always strange to me watching watching it because it's like, ah, man, the Bonin of 2012 gets that gap and that's it. You know, he is gone. And now the Bonin of 2016 gets the gap and this dude who's been in the breakaway all day is somehow able to claw him back. He just doesn't have the same level of powers that he used to but maybe mentally he still thinks he has that power but yeah great great addition i i love watching that one so the next uh next one we have on our list is the most recent Paris roubaix all three of us were there i remember andy and i were in the press room which is in the velodrome there watching the events unfold and um james why did you choose the 2019 edition um, it's, you know, obviously there are so many, <laughs> so many amazing Roubaix to choose from. And like I said, I mean, it just almost never produces a, a, a bad winner. Every winner is made, is, 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 is so amazing. Um, and, you know, I mean, Sagan's, Sagan's victory, amazing. Van Avermaet's victory, amazing. Boonin's fourth, or Boonin was amazing. I mean, I, I mean, Consular, I mean, so many amazing rises. Where do you start, right? Um, but I really, I really loved this one. I think because I picked Gilbert way out, and um, and I kind of followed him and really saw the way that he built up for this. Uh, now, don't forget, you know, until two years before, nobody people have pretty much written him off as a classics rider, a doubled classics rider, right? Um, he made his name in the Ardennes and all, but I remembered, but then, and then he had won the. Uh, 
the Flanders uh, race, and people started thinking, but then some were still going, ah, oh, yeah, but would he have won without the without the Sagan van Avermaet crash? Um, I think he would have, but that's another story. Um, and and then I remembered I had interviewed him years ago, and we still remember this. He remembers this too. Uh, I think in two thousand three or something. And at one point I said, you know, would you ever? What about Roubaix? And he said, you know, at the end of my career, uh, not before. And that's what he was doing. Uh, he'd ridden it the year before, uh, rode well, but uh, missed some hand ups and uh, bonked a little bit, or just, you know, just got a little dehydrated at the r- wrong time and uh, lost contact with the front. And it was game over. But Gilbert learns lessons, and he's, you know, he's the amount of people who tell me have said to me, nobody's smarter than Philippe Gilbert on a bike. Uh, are I couldn't count them on. I, could, I couldn't count them on one hand. Probably, probably be more than two hands. He's a very foxy, a very smart bike rider, and and we really saw it here. Um, it'll be interesting because I actually um, talked to him about it again, and we're going to be uh, uh, this week uh, reliving that uh, later in the week with the story as he analyzes it. But he really breaks it down, and I saw him already uh, when he won a stage in the Tour of Provence, and just the way he mastered. All the attack final, I was like, whoa, he's going to have a good spring. And yet, throughout the spring, I saw him really playing the team card. Uh, you know, I think he played the team card in Milan San Remo. Uh, and I was only too happy to see Alaphilippe win. But, you know, that's another race he's always wanted to win. But I think he, he played the team card there. I very much saw him play the team card in Genfevelgem, where they were riding for Viviani. I mean, he was leading up the climb and... They had a good. There was a good uh, breakaway off the front that day, and they were kind of hovering out there at a minute, minute and a half as it came into Vevelgem. And it was only when Gilbert got to the front that 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 gap just went down, and you saw how strong he was. But he was riding for Viviani. Why? Because he was saving it for for Roubaix. And I put him down on my. You know, I play as we all. So many of us do. We have a, you know our little Velo Games League, right? And and I had him down that day, and um, and I just you know. I just thought he was going to pop it, and he did. And it was, but it was really interesting talking to him last week about this because he he really analyzes and break, breaks it down. And, and the way that Gilbert can analyze a race, uh, you really get into the sort of science of, of racing at the highest level. A for one, um, he wanted to at all price make it into that breakaway, and he said he was going. He was attacking with everything for like two hours, and they were going all out, you know. And like Andy said, um, being off at the front uh, in the break is often uh, the easiest place, and he really wanted to be to be there. He thought the break was going to stay out, um, or somebody in the break could stay off. And he said, just nothing was going. And the moment he said, the moment he, he just couldn't, he had to go to the the bathroom so bad. And they were poaching the cobbles. And the moment he went back to to take a take a pee is when the group got away, and he was so pissed. Um, but then he's racing you know, a very different race, um, and he. Uh, and, you know, and he had to, uh, then he had to race, you know, with everybody else, but he did it. And, um, I watched him at several points. It's funny because there's, I always, you know, I'm photographing the race and I'm always stopping at certain sectors. And it's always interesting to see who is where, when. And, you know, obviously you got to be up front in Ehrenberg. You don't, you don't really win the race there, but you can lose it. So everybody needs to be up front. And I think he was. Um, but it was several sections later. Uh, it's after, after or she, uh, it's a section after or she, um, I think it's, uh, let me think about that. I think it's, see, it's before Mont-Saint-Pelleville, I think it's Bercy or something like that. Um, and every year I'm there and the, the winner is at the front. That's, uh, that's where Sagan, Sagan had just attacked right before that. Uh, the year when, uh, Cancellara edged out Van Mark. The two of them were on the front right there. And guess who was on the front that, right there? Philippe Schubert. And you could tell that he was on, on having a really good day. And, you know, he was just, he was racing. He was at the front controlling it at, at that point. He told me he, he, he went up and did the recon of that race about five or six times before the actual team recon last year. He really wanted to have it down in his head and he realized how important that was. And he hadn't, since he hadn't really raced it, he only raced it twice in his life before, you know, he didn't have it. But he understood that after uh, after Arenberg, there's a bunch of zigzag and the wind is always changing. And, you know, he, he understood, he got to, really got to know the cobbles 
and was well placed. And he was at the front uh, from you know so much of the the rest of uh, of the race. Um, but he, you know, he wasn't the only one. He, I mean, he was strong, but he wasn't the only one. Uh, and you know, and yet he never panicked. I mean, okay, everybody said Sagan's not as good this year, but Sagan was there. He was always there. You couldn't shake him. And I remember he came into the Ehrenberg. He had Eve Park, his team driving at the front. You got Sagan. You got Sagan there. And I'm like, Philippe, you're not starting to worry about Sagan. I mean, okay, he might not be as good, but if you get in the velodrome with him, you have a hard time beating him. And he's like, no, I, I knew that he was on the rivet. I could just tell. And it was just, he just like, he, he knew it was like down to one attack. And he, he accelerated uh, hard uh, in the cow four. Sagan gets on his wheel at first, but then fades a little bit. And that's when Polik gets up to him. And, and for a while, it's, it's uh, Niels Pollitt and, 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 and Gilbert. And then the Sagan group comes back. And when he said, but I knew that the second to last cobblestone section is, is just, is almost worse. I mean, everybody talks about Kaur 4 and traditionally that's been the hard, hard one. Uh, the last chance for people to get away. But he said, you know, the, the, the section at, uh, Hem, which is what, 10K out maybe has just gotten to be so bad. And he said, I knew I had there. And that's where he went again. And that's where he got off with Pollitt. And that's where he, he cracked. He cracked and snapped um, Sagan. I was just so impressed with the whole race and the way he broke it down, the way he never panicked, and the way he just played everybody off against each other. And, and you know, he knew that he had he, – he knew in the hardest moments of racing that he didn't panic. He was confident that he had Sagan on the ropes and that he was going to break him. And that's what he did. And um, – and then he just had to come into that velodrome and um, and keep his head on and focus and get that victory. Sheet. You know, he obviously did. Um, so I just thought the way he the way he made that. You know, he wants to win all the monuments. Perubo was one of the the ones that still is out there. They hadn't won yet. And Milan Sanremo was the only one that's left. Um, and I just uh, the way he he controlled it to to get this monument that he so badly wanted from the beginning of the season. Uh, really, I thought was just uh, a work of art. And I'll tell you one thing, uh, the next two years or whenever, when, as long as he's wearing a, a number at the start of Milan San Remo, he's going to be my favorite until he retires. Sounds like you have a little man crush there, James. <laughs> I, I, just, <laughs> I, I mean, I just like, I like Gilbert. He really can, he's a pure bike rider. He's, you know, he's up there with Alaphilippe. Um, these guys just, they're old school. Uh, and they just, they race their bikes. That's, you know, what can you say? Yeah, I think that it's a, it's a great story, James. I think it, what's interesting about Gilbert, because um, he, he really was, the last two years, 19 and 18, really was playing the team card at so many races, even like some of these other, you know, No Care Course and some of these other little races, Dwarsdor, Vlandelin. A lot of times it was Gilbert who was really kind of setting up his teammates for the wins. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think Gilbert got his you know, credit for what the way he's been riding as a teammate. And it's interesting too, in the way, the way that quick step has been so stacked with so much talent in these races, you can almost see a little bit of anticipation sometimes in these races among the quick step riders, because if you're the guy off the front, I mean, we talked about it already today with the 2014, uh, Robe, and it's, and it's played out in so many of these different classics with, uh, quick step, you know, if quick step has two or three, four guys in that front group, and you're the guy that goes, that blocks all your teammates behind because they're going to race to block the race. And it seemed like almost in 2018 that Joubert, you know, he obviously came off the big win at Flanders. It seemed like maybe he did a little bit in that 2018 Bay where he was trying to be that first guy off the front. Maybe. That's just the way I kind of read the race sometimes. There was that kind of sense of anxiety inside the quick step team, even though they – even though they say they, they handle it quite well amongst themselves, there's no real sense of rivalry. But because they all know, they all agree that on that team, they have the best chance of winning and they do kind of get their turns eventually. It's okay. Well, you know, that race wasn't for me, but I know the next race I'll have a good chance. And they all keep racing and it all stacked up for last year for Gilbert. I agree with James. It's a beautiful, beautiful victory. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's, it's really interesting. Uh, sorry to butt in there because in the, in the interview, you'll see. Um, yeah, I think at one point Lampard, he said, you know, Lampard is really hammering off the front. You could tell he's accelerating out of every turn in the Cow of Four. And 
at one point over the race radio, he says uh, that the, they they told him to get on Lampart's wheel and let a gap open and let Lampart roll off the front and essentially hand the race to Lampart. And he says to us, he says in the interview, he said, no way, no way. He said, this one's mine. And he had every right. He's He's He doesn't get credit for a lot of things. He's the winningest classics rider in activity. Uh, nobody can come close to him uh, with their, their Palmeras on the classics. I think he's got 14 and maybe, what, five monuments. So, you know, and he he, he had sacrificed himself a lot uh, for a lot of races, and he said, this one's mine. And he had, he was he's in his realm to do that. And he said, you know, hey, we're not teammates this year. If I'd given that one up, I really would uh, regret that. And, he, and you know, he's Philly Jubert. He deserves to, to call, you know, say this one's mine once in a while. That's funny that he um, acknowledged that because when I went back and rewatched that edition, I, I've always been struck by the good teammate work of Yves Lampart in those – in that final group. I feel like his um, efforts and his work did a lot to distance Wout van Aert who was the big danger man. And, you know, the one of the big storylines coming into this race in general was Wout van Aert being at the helm of Team uh, Lotto Yumbo, having just a really good supporting cast, being extremely strong, you know, tackling Perry Roubaix with this big team for one of the first times. But, you know, everyone wanted to see what he could do. And he had some bad luck. He had a flat tire, had to do some bike changes, and then was able to make right. it crashed i mean and he had to chase from way far out but did make it into that front group but then it was i felt like the work of lampart and to a certain degree yeah, I thought uh, lampart was tremendous. who uh helped distance what van art An- another thing that though oh man again it's just like time and time again with flanders and roubaix but it's the bad luck of sep van mark so sep van mark makes it into that front group He's strong. He's very strong. He's super motivated. And then I think it's right past the car for his uh, derailleur jams. His DI2 stopped shifting and he's stuck in the hardest gear. And he had to fade back to the team car. They were banging on it. He couldn't get going again. I think finally he eventually got going again, but not until he lost the wheel. And I remember, you know, the, the scenes from the velodrome that will always stick out to me are first, Wout Van Aert collapsing on the ground with his uh, girlfriend and like just being catatonic, like not being able to move and just sort of like rolling around and, you know, having to be revived with water. And then the second one is Sepp Van Marka in tears with his wife, just staring off into space and cursing more bad luck at the classics. Because it's like, how many times have we seen that with him? It's like a crash, a flat tire, a derailleur or something at the worst possible moment. And he, you know, in his quotes, and he was he was pretty pissed at the questions we asked, but he was just like, I was so motivated and fit. Like, this was the year. This was the year. So just another heartbreaker for old Sepp Van Marke. Yeah, well, he says, he says that uh, we talked to him, uh, the Tour de Provence this year about that. And he said, yeah, I said, actually, the, the jam happened on the Carrefour, uh, and he was, you know, right there. And that's when he, when, when he got the jam, that's when the attacks were going. Um, so he really, you know, he really suffered. But, um, th- yeah, that, he said, you know, he's gracious enough. He's not going to say, I would have won it, but he said, I was going to, I would have definitely been there in the Velodrome for that sprint. Um, and, you know, what can you say? He, he deserves, to, if there's one guy that deserves to win one of those, it's him, huh? Um, and I thought, yeah, I thought Lampard worked just tremendously, um, as he often does. Uh, it was just a, a management call, and um, and uh, and uh, what can you say? Gilbert went to the upper management, made an executive decision all his own. <laughs> well, it was the right call. So, I mean, we didn't have uh, too much of a season, but again, same question that I posed to you at the end of last week's pod: Who do you think would have won, or at the very least, who would have been up there at Roubaix? Uh, this year, James, I'll start with you. Well, um, Sagan was, uh, you know, he's kind of every other year he really pops a big one. So I think, uh, I think he was really very motivated. He he been, you know, he did uh, an altitude camp for almost a month after San Juan in Colombia. I think he would have, uh, I think he would have been right there, um, and I think Schubert would have been right. There. Obviously, it would have been interesting to see what what quick step uh, the Kunin could have done, but they didn't. They they don't have the big, big guns uh, that they had a couple of years ago. Uh, that doesn't make them any less dangerous. But, um, you know, I think those two guys would have been uh, right there again. I think I think Sagan still has a couple of great, great, great races in him. And that would have been a great opportunity for it. How about you, Hoodie? 
I was looking forward to see how uh, Vanderpool could have done on the Cobbs this year. I mean, he was supposed to race. I mean, I just, that, that guy's amazing. I mean, he everyone saw what he did last year in the classics, and I was really looking forward to see what he could have done this year, you know, racing Roubaix for the first time. And then also uh, your man, Van Aert, you know, how he was going to come back from that crash. Uh, at the tour last year, it seemed like he was going pretty well. I think, you know, I think it was just going to be such a great classic season. I've just been crying in my, I've been, you know, I've, I've stopped drinking beer in my lockdown. It's my 30 day challenge is lockdown and no beer. So I've been crying in my uh, zero, zero beer and missing the classics because I think they would have been so good. Yeah. I really wanted to see what Wode Van Aert could do just because he was obviously so strong last year. I think he was perhaps the strongest guy at Roubaix last year, but the bad luck and he played his cards wrong a couple times. I mean, he made it into that front group after crashing and flat tires and stuff and catching back on. And then, then he like, he took a couple pulls that were a little bit long and got spit out the back. But I really wondered, you know, with the knowledge he had from last year and knowing how smart and how fit a bike racer is, like what he could have done, especially with a pretty good supporting cast there. But we will never know. They'll have to do a Perry Roubaix on Zwift. Well, guys, I really appreciate you going back and watching these old editions of the classics and arming yourself with the uh, perspective and hindsight to break it down. Um, Roubaix, we'll never, Roubaix 2020, we'll never know. Hopefully, there's a Roubaix 2021. For James Stark. Oh, what? We still have a. We yeah, may we still. still yeah. November Roubaix. Why not? Well, so no, here's, the, here's the here's the here's the unspoken challenge with that all. I've had a couple conversations where guys are like, "Well, it's it'd be great if we had classics in November, but boy, what does that do for classics 2021? If you have to get real fit, be on the top of your game for an end of season classics campaign, and then like try and recover and build back up for uh, March and April, um, that's that's a challenge in itself to these guys. They can do it. They're not doing much right now, so. I think I have plenty of time. <laughs> well, for Andrew Hood and James Starr, it's Fred Dreyer. Thanks for tuning in to the Velo News Podcast. We will be back next week.